Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to another episode of Conspire Normal. This is your host Adam Sane, as usual. And uh, tonight um, uh, it's me just solo at the helm. I'm uh, just going to do a pr- brief intro and uh, say that I have an interview tonight with uh, Archbishop James Long of the Paranormal Clergy. Uh, and uh, he is a Archbishop of the traditionalist um, Catholic faith. And uh, we're going to talk to him about exorcisms and uh, paranormal investigations and other such things. Um, so, hope everybody enjoys it. And uh, I'll be back to uh, close it out on Conspiranormal. Alright, this is your host Adam Sane here on Conspiranormal. And on the line I have uh, Archbishop James Long. And uh, we're going to talk about a number of things. But uh, one of the kind of most important things we're going to talk about is... Uh, exorcisms and possession but uh, I first wanted to bring uh, uh, Bishop Long on here uh, to talk about who he is and can you kind of give us a good idea if, if no one has uh, in my audience has never heard of you just kind of go over who you are and uh, what uh, what it is that you do sure yeah I um, you know I studied for the Roman Catholic priesthood and it was during my times in the seminary that um, I chose to join the Independent Catholic Church because I really wanted to help the general public with uh, spiritual issues, and so I decided to move forward with that. And um, 2001, I started the Paranormal Clergy because there was no organization that was helping the paranormal community at all. There was no one there, and this was way before Facebook. This was a, you know, Yahoo groups and trying to get the name out that way and let people know that we exist and. Um, but that's what I did, and so I worked uh, feverishly on, on helping the community. Uh, had, a, had a lots of ups and downs, uh, but uh, in the end, the, the goal was to um, 
to help people. You know, I, I knew since I was five I wanted to be a priest. And at nine years old, I remember picking up my first book on demonology. I didn't know why. I just knew that was the calling. Sure. And uh, what is kind of the difference between the independent Catholic Church and the uh, the Roman Catholic Church? What's the some of, of the difference there? Yeah, and uh, there's some interchange as far as the names, independent old Catholic Church. Um, but what it is, is in 1870s or so, there was a, a huge debate on papal infallibility. Because at that time, Rome, Rome had a, a tremendous amount of power. Tremendous. And the papacy had a lot of power. And there was a lot of people that were being charged with, um, you know, uh, you know, heretics and things of this nature. And that was a very frightening, very frightening moment for many people at the time. And and so the Pope said, well, I, you know, declare himself infallible without error in church teaching. And there was a huge split. And um, actually, it started in the Netherlands, in, in Utrecht. Uh, the church in Utrecht, Pope Leo, I believe the 10th, gave the church of Utrecht complete autonomy. And it's okay, you know, you build your church, build a community, um, and, you know, it'll be hands-off. We're not going to be governing you. We're not going to be beating you up. Because there's a lot of churches at that time where, you know, Rome had to govern because they were financially strapped. They were hurting. But the church in the Netherlands was doing very well, very well financially. And then uh, Rome says, well, you know, we decided that, um, you know, we're going to take over the church of Netherlands. And they say, well, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, we have autonomy. We built a church. We're, we're teaching Catholicism. You're not going to come over and take our assets. It's not going to happen. Sure. So there was a huge split within the Catholic Church uh, because there were many priests and bishops who said, no, they're not doing this. Um, you know, they, they didn't want the, pa the papacy to overstep their power by, you know, infallibility. So that's primarily the... Uh, the issue and why the split occurred. Is there a difference between the independent Catholic Church and the traditionalist Catholic Church? Well, they're all, when you're talking about traditionalism, independent Catholic, you, that, that's why I'm saying the name is, 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 when you say independent, old Catholic, it's, it's really okay. all the same tradition as far as the apostolic succession. Uh, even in, uh, there's a, an article by Ratzinger, it was ratified by Ratzinger, with, uh, who of course was Benedict, Feminist right. uh, Jesus have been very clear that the old Catholics have valid orders and that they can um, bestow the sacraments upon the faithful. And so it's not my rules. That's <laughs> what Rome said. But there, yeah. are, there are some old Catholics that are very conservative, very conservative, and they will not ordain women. They will not allow their priests even to marry. And there are some old Catholics that are very liberal. And so um, you have one extreme and the other extreme. But you have all the training that a, that like a, a regular, like the Roman Catholic Church would have. Like you've gone Absolutely. to seminary yeah. and you've been ordained and all that. Yes, so I've been consecrated to the Episcopacy, yes. Excellent. Okay. Well, um, I just wanted to talk about, uh, you know, start talking about the paranormal clergy. Um, you said that you started that in 2001. I mean, what is the paranormal clergy? What is it that you guys do? How, how do you uh, how do you help people in like hauntings cases? Well, what happened is when I first came out public with the ministry, I, I didn't want to go public, but people kept saying, "Hey, look, we need help. There's no clergy helping the, the paranormal community," and yeah. there was a lot of outcry for help. So I, I said, "Okay, we'll start this organization." 
the the three goals that I had for the organization was to build it, begin networking with other teams. The second goal was to then um, network and, and, and do media appearances so that I can let people know that we're here to help. And then the third goal, which we're doing now, transitioning, is I am now stepping away as managing the paranormal clergy and you know, letting the laity do it, which is the, was the long-term goal from the very beginning. So we have affiliates all across the United States, and when there is a case that comes into Cat Lang or Richard Aldez, who are the administrators, what they will do is they will review the case, and then they will forward that on to the affiliate team in that geographical area, and then that team will go out and investigate. And if it warrants clergy's attention, then we get involved. Okay. What are some of the kind of cases, like how, um, if you respond to a case, um, how extreme does it have to be to, for you guys to come in? Well, the, the, you know, the major issue, of course, with, with clergy is the distance, the geographical location. I mean, there's... You know, if we have, a, we have people who need help in New York, well, we're not located in New York. So, and yeah. we haven't won the lottery, so we can't just hop on a plane and go <laughs> across the United States. And that's, that's one of the biggest and troubling things that we're dealing with. Because quite honestly, there's a lot of people in the paranormal community who are performing rituals. They have no business performing because they're not validly trained. Right. Uh, and that really is a major problem. Uh do you consider you consider yourself also? A, I would seem like a demonologist. Uh, I'm an exorcist. Okay. A demonologist is one who has accepted his or her calling, and to study demonology and to, and to help clergy insisting in cases. Uh, an exorcist is one who is validly trained, and who is an ordained priest, and who is given permission by his ordinary to perform the solemn rite of exorcism. Exorcism of individuals who's possessed. Laity cannot perform the solemn rite of exorcism. Okay, they would need a priest there in order to do that. Absolutely, because the ritual, what's happening is a lot of people who even claim to be demonologists, they're picking up the solemn rite, uh, yeah. which is an exorcism performed on an individual who is possessed. Well, they have no business doing that at all, because the rubrics of the rite, and I didn't write the rules, but the rubrics of the rite clearly stated that if you are not a validly ordained priest, you have no business even reading this ritual. Sure. And this ritual, this ritual is, is a very ancient ritual. I mean, the first mention of an exorcist as an office comes from a letter written by Pope, uh, Pope Cornelius in 253. And so the first form of, uh, of the rite of exorcism was written in 1614. So this is a very ancient ritual. And unfortunately, many people are not really taking it as sacred as, as it is. If, if someone is considered possessed, um, how, how do you determine that a possession has taken place? Well, first of all, if someone says, okay, we have a possession, we agree with our loved one, or someone might be possessed, one of the requires a psychological evaluation. We have to. Right. So they have a psychological evaluation, they have a medical evaluation. I need to know what medications they're on. I need to know if we're dealing with someone who has a disassociative personality disorder or multiple personality. Because what you do is you perform an exorcism on someone with disassociative personality, then you create another personality, and, and that's very dangerous. You perform an exorcism on someone who has paranoia schizophrenia, you can place them in a state of manic depression, and they can kill, commit suicide. Yeah. 
So what we have to do is we have to make sure that the psychological evaluations are done and properly done by a certified licensed psychiatrist, as well as having the medical background of the individual. And people say all the time, well, how do you know if you're truly dealing with possession? Well, a mentally ill person cannot levitate. A mentally ill person cannot mimic the voice of a deceased loved one. A mentally ill person cannot say the Our Father backwards in Aramaic. As you begin to pray, and then it begins to say it backwards. That's not mental illness. I would say not, yeah. Uh, in how many cases, though, have you that have been like, you would say, if you had to give a percentage, are like actual real possession? Very rare. Very rare. I've done this okay. now for going on 13 years. And um, in 13 years, I've performed 27 actual valid exorcisms on people who are truly possessed. And we get emails. We get hundreds of emails all the time. I mean, it's, just, it's amazing how many emails we get. But um, 27. 27. And that was through how many years? 13 years. 13 years? That's correct. Yeah, not, yeah, that's not very many as far as, like, your percentage. No, uh, it's not. Well, describe. Uh, I'd heard some. You know, you'd posted on Facebook a little bit ago about the minor rite of exorcism. Uh, is is there also a major rite? Well, no. It's the solemn rite. The okay. solemn rite is um, is the ritual that is performed on someone who is possessed. The minor rite of exorcism was published by Pope Leo the Thirteenth in May eighteenth of um, eighteen ninety. And that was for the sole purpose of exorcism against Satan and the rebellious angels who have infested themselves within a home and causing havoc within families. So those are the two different um, rites of exorcism. Okay, so you have the solemn, you have the solemn rite and the minor rite. That is correct. The minor okay. rite, you know, you have a demonic infestation that infests itself, causing a lot of major issues, and then of course there's a blessing and there's an ultimate clash and the expulsion of the devil or of the fallen angel uh, in that matter. So uh, that, that's, the minor rite is not performed on someone who's possessed. That's the solemn rite. Are, are there any cases in your mind that stand out to you uh, that, you have, that you've been involved with? Well, sure, all 27 exorcisms. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, you, you perform an exorcism and it'll change your life forever. Uh, forever. I mean, you can't, it, it's not something you ever, ever, never, you'll never forget. Sure. So every exorcism that I have performed has taken its hold, um, and I remember every one of them. What are some of the, is there any particular case that uh, you could describe for us? Well, I think, you know, one of the, one of the most probably emotional, I've had a lot of emotional cases, but I think yeah. probably one of the most emotional cases, there was a woman, she was 68 years old, and she was, you know, she was very much like a grandma. Uh, she always had. She always wanted to cook for you, and she always wanted to cook and uh, sit down and talk. And, and she just very welcoming. But she was dealing with an incubus case, Ooh. and it was pretty terrible. When I got involved in the case, um, she was literally ripped apart in both um, in the private region and in the anal area, and Ooh. she was in trouble. She was in very, very serious trouble. And we have a video, actually, of her sleeping on the bed, and you see the bed sheets rise and fall and rise and fall. And she'd call them bedwalkers. And um, she, she felt like dogs, like little small dogs walking on her bed, going towards her. 
And I think what she endured was 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 ho- horrible. It, it was violent. And I think emotionally, because I, I was I got so attached to her, um, I think that was probably the most complicated case. What what does you think the uh, motivation of the demonic in doing these things? Well, do you have children? I have a stepson. Okay. You love your stepson very much. I do. You would do anything in the world for your stepson. Sure. What is one person, what is something that one person can do to you to hurt you the most? Probably do something to him. And that would be the answer on why demonic entities did attack us. Because they attack us, not necessarily because they care about us, they attack us because they want to hurt God. To hurt God through us. Absolutely. I mean, just the same way as one of the worst things someone could do to you is to hurt your stepson. The same thing that the worst thing they could do to God is to hurt the very ones that he loved, the ones that he created in his own image, his children, us. Sure. Okay. So there's a real hate there between the for humanity. Uh, well, a, a total rejection of humanity. I mean, uh, angels fell because when, when man was created in the image of God, remember angels are here to serve man. Yeah. And so Lucifer, there's no way he wasn't going to do it. And remember, and, and free will exists in heaven. And so angels can freely accept or freely reject, just as we can freely accept or, re- or reject. And they absolutely refuse to to serve us. They absolutely refuse to accept that we are then created in the image of God. A total rejection of God. Do you also believe that there are human spirits? Oh, sure, absolutely, okay. no question. Yeah, because that's something in kind of the, uh, or at least as far as like maybe more towards the evangelical Protestant area, that they would not believe that they would think it's all demonic but you have kind of a different uh, take on that and that you see that there's a and I think that I feel the same way that there's definitely a difference between demonic and, and human spirits um, there's no question no question at all and they got uh, and also I think that they're missing the boat on something you know to, to, to say that human spirits do not exist then immediately violates the gift of free will yeah because when we pass on, is heaven forced upon us, or is heaven presented to us? If, if heaven is forced upon us, then we have no free will after death, and therefore angels don't exist, and therefore demons don't exist. Because there's no free one, there's no free. If people are saying that there, is, there are no human spirits, they're saying that there is no free will. So therefore, demonic entities cannot freely then choose to reject God. So their whole argument that demons, demons are able to reject God on their own free will in heaven, but yet heaven is going to be forced upon us, that's, that's, that's contrary, it's a contradiction. Hmm. Uh, how do you see that uh, the, the relationship between uh, the demonic and human spirits, such as I've... I've you know, I've studied a lot of these kind of, uh, you know, violent hauntings. We've had on a few people, you know, a couple of people that I think you know, uh, Tim Yancey, Bill Bean, uh, those guys. Fantastic and, people. Just oh, fan. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, genuine, and, genuine to the heart. 
and it, and it seems that in those cases and other cases as well, it's always seemed to me like you do have human spirits, but you have this kind of almost like there's this overlord, so to speak. There's, like there's an entity controlling it or keeping them there. Um, is that something that you've run into in some of your some of your cases? You know, when I primarily get involved with a case, it's either there is a true demonic infestation issue or there is a possession. And when you have a demonic infestation going into oppression, there's no guessing involved at all, that at all. Yeah. And what I will do is I will perform a deliverance first. I will pray for the repose of the souls who may be there for whatever reason. And then upon the deliverance, I then perform the minor rite of exorcism for those malevolent spirits who wish who have the intent to cause harm. So it's a two-stage process in the minor rite of exorcism. And, and those malevolent spirits could include human spirits as well. It's Absolutely. not necessarily always a, always a demon. Yes. Uh, do you see that there's that there is somewhat of a like we talk about the uh, like the ghost shows and all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Do you see that there is a because uh, I know that <laughs> you were on. Uh, I remember you from the uh, show Ghost Adventures, basically chiding into Zach Baggins about uh, what he was doing, yelling at ghosts. Do you see that there's more of an increase now that since the ghost shows have been on? that people go out there um, unprepared and they're running into things that normally probably we wouldn't be dangerous entities that we probably wouldn't normally be running into? Well, I have, you know, since the shows have have appeared on television, I have noticed certainly an opening and welcoming to discuss the issue. You know, my parents' generation, you know, they, they were taught you just don't discuss it. Yeah. Uh, the, old, the old saying, don't speak of the devil, you may hear the flap of its wings. Sure. The old saying. So, you know, I think it's a different generation to where now we can talk about it without, you know, the, the people in the white coats taking you away to the asylum. And that's good. That's a good thing. But the problem is you've got a lot of teens out there who are investigating cases that, are, that can be quite dangerous and have some real serious consequences. And we are dealing with that. We are, one of the big major issues that we have, quite honestly, is now it, it appears that every team has a psychic and every team has a demonologist. Right. And, and even worse, the demonologist and even the psychics are performing rituals they have no business performing. A demonologist and exorcist are not the same thing. Yeah. John Zaffis has been in this field for 40 years. And he knows that there are things that he cannot and will not do because he's not a priest. Right. He would never perform an exorcism. He says that. Oh, absolutely that he, not. He, I always would have to get a priest. If, look, if someone is validly possessed and you perform an exorcism on them, you can kill them. Yeah. Well, plain and simple, you can kill them. They could die from, a person could expire from an exorcism. Annalise McKell. Yeah. Emily Rose, she was 68 pounds when she died. And, and that's very common, because when a person is truly possessed, the demonic entity will not allow any substance of life to enter their body, food and water. 
So if a person is playing exorcist and they're not trained, they have no idea what they're doing, they could kill somebody. Sure. Absolutely. What was the result of that? Uh, the, the, I mean, the real Emily Rose, Annalise Michelle. What was the result of that trial? What uh, What happened there? Well, the, the priests were found guilty of negligence, um, but in the end, I mean, they they just um, their whole lives were completely changed. Obviously, I mean, she, she passed, and but. It was it was it was a darn it was a darn shame what the priests had to endure and the, and the public attacks that they had to endure because they were helping this this person. Right. So I, I think there was a lot of shame and that they basically went into hiding. They they um, it, it changed their life completely. I think that was the biggest issue is that it, it affected them so so greatly. And we also have you know. Uh, you've gone through, I remember seeing you speak before, and you go through some of the history of exorcisms. Um, you have, you know, like there's the St. Louis exorcism um, and the Annalise Michelle exorcism. Is there any other, you know, like a major one that you could think of uh, that would be interesting? I mean, I would say those two probably are the most prevalent. Now, of course, right. there are exorcisms that are not... Um, that are not placed in TV, but there there certainly are other cases where I have read, yeah, where the possessed was um, it was very very violent, absolutely very violent, and so I'm not there. There have been exorcists, violently trained exorcists, who have said they have seen levitation um, and other contortion of the body, a certain contortion of the body, and so some of the cases have been quite uh, alarming. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Do you think, um, what would you say to someone that would say, well, you know, this is some kind of uh, outdated material that uh, that these things that happen, the exorcism, are just some kind of physiological or neurological thing that we don't understand yet, such as that, um, you know, in ancient times or even up until really the 20th century, you know, epilepsy was seen as a form of, of possession, but we now know that that's a, a neurological disorder. Um, what would you say to someone to say, well, this is just something we haven't discovered yet? You know, my job is not to convince you that demons exist. My job is just to help the families who believe they do. Yeah. Right. And Excellent answer. And that's, I've learned that. I've learned that the hard way, because I've tried to date with people and explain to people, but some people are just so convinced in their faith, and that's so, and, and in their beliefs, and that's okay. But just because someone says demons don't exist, that doesn't mean they're right. That's yeah. argumentum ad ignoratium, yeah. argument from ignorance. There's no proof that demons exist, therefore they don't. Well, just because that person has never seen a demon, it doesn't mean that demons don't exist. So if people can state an opinion, that's fine, but that doesn't mean it's a fact. Right. I would say neurological condition, understand that when an exorcist, a validly trained exorcist will do things before the exorcism begins, and the person has no idea what they're doing. The person is not even looking at the exorcist. The exorcist is provoking. And the exorcist is provoking not by saying, come on, do something, I dare you, but they're provoking by doing several religious, what's we're not going to get into. And they're, they're forcing the entity to manifest itself. That has nothing to do with a neurological condition. Right. Okay. 
Well, I know just you probably have run into people that have said something Quite like that before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and I, I, to me, I believe that there is that this actually is a real phenomenon. So, but I think you do, as you you know stated in the first part of the interview, that you know you do have to be careful, um, yeah. especially with mental illness. Yes, um, you do. Because people did understand those things in earlier times, but I think we've, I, I think what has happened is that we've narrowed it down to where, as you said, if someone's speaking the Lord's Prayer backwards in Aramaic, <laughs> that's 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 a, that's a pretty extreme case. It just doesn't really happen in normal everyday, like say schizophrenia or any other kind of like uh, disorder or anything. Yeah, I always say to people this. I always say, listen. And these are all from a credit, and you would not believe, I, I, you know, dealing with demonic entities is one thing, but what I had to deal with when I went public with my ministry, the violence, the attacks, oh my gosh, you would not believe the amount of attacks that I had to endure from people within the paranormal community. Yeah. You would not believe, you would be stunned. People are making statements that all my degrees are fake, that I never attended the seminary, that I lied about it, that I'm not a real bishop. It got so bad. I literally, I had to post my degrees from the seminaries and from the universities that I attended. I had to post them on Facebook. Yeah. So everybody could see it. So everybody could see it. It was ridiculous. Oh, my gosh. You, you... You'd be sorry, or, or, or the comments that I do the TVs and documentaries for fame and fortune. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's just, that's just plain stupid. Yeah. Um, fortune, are you kidding me? I've had to pay out of my own pocket to show up at these scenes to film. There's, right. no, there's no paycheck. You're not on, you're not, you're not on a, you're not on the roster. You don't, it's not a crew. You don't get paid for these things. I mean, what's wrong with these people? And you have to travel as well. Oh, I had to travel. And there was no, there was no compensation. There was no uh, compensation for that or reimbursement for that. I had to pay out of my own pocket to get to these places. Yeah. And so this whole idea that it's, it's just ignorance. You know, people who state comments, make comments, and they don't know the facts. Well, he's not a real bishop. Okay, you know, if that's what you want to believe, that's fine. He never went to the seminary. All right, and if you want to believe that, that's fine, too. Well, Bishop Long, where do you think that comes from, that reluctance to, to believe uh, that what you're saying is, is the, what you're doing is serious? Well, uh, where I think what comes from, people attacking? Yeah, yeah. Why do you I think don't know people attacking? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I was surprised. Yeah. When I first went public with my ministry, I was really expecting people to say, oh, good, we have a clergy here who's willing to help. But no, oh my God, it was a, it was aggressive. One person had made a comment that I ordained a 16-year-old kid and that he was living with me as my lover. <laughs> really? Now, I, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be, what in the world? <laughs> I mean, these are the things, it got so bad I had to go to the hospital because I thought I was having a heart attack. Uh. The, stress level, the stress level was so bad. I almost had a heart attack, not because of an exorcism that I performed, but because of the stress and gossip and hatred that people are spreading. Now think about that for a moment. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost like it's better better off dealing with demons than people. 
No question. That's, I mean, yeah, I, I always feel it's like if demons, you know what you're dealing with somehow. It's, it's kind of that's interesting that you put I it that people, way. I don't have to prove to you that demons exist. Just look around, you can see people's par- and their, their behavior in the paranormal community. Yeah. That's plenty proof. It, it, it seems to me, and uh, you know, I get off on the subject for a little bit, but it seems to me that some of the like the paranormal community, uh, you know, it used to be, uh, I really think about being serious and about the investigation. You know, somebody has a job, they work nine to five, at night time they go out and they investigate, and they're they're passionate about it. And and I've met a few people that are still like that. But it seems to me that some people in that community are just kind of looking at, you know, that they want to get a show or a television show somewhere or they want to be on uh, the news or, or something like that. And it seems to me that there's a lot of that, that that goes around that's really harmful to that paranormal ghost hunting community as a whole. And, you know, that's something that Tim Yancey has, has spoken about. You know, I don't think we talked about it on the show with him. But, uh, you know, he has basically said to, like, like at the Mid-South Paranormal Convention, um, which you will be at next week, but uh, he, he basically dropped a bomb in the room saying, you know, we, uh, we, you know, we need to help people and not worry about, you know, our shirts or worry about who's going to be on TV or worry about this and this, this and that thing. So there's this real kind of, uh, fame aspect that's gone on because the, you, and you would think that the paranormal, uh, television would have just kind of, uh, gone away by now. I mean, it's been almost 10 years since the first ghost hunter show. Right. And, but it's still there. I mean, people are still, you know, trying to people are still watching the stuff and still interested in it so it still lives on which can be a good thing but i think that people have have really looking you know far beyond the horizons of just helping people and for some kind of self am i making sense what i'm saying yeah and i think there's a lot of and you have to look at the intent of the individual for example i like i said i had three main goals uh, when i started the paranormal clergy was to, to, yeah. to build a foundation than to get the, the word out that we exist. And the best way for me to get the word out that we exist is by accepting the invitation to do media appearances. And, yeah. of course, I help families as well. I have no desire to do media appearances. Um, I, I, I just don't like it. It's very stressful. And I have been offered TV shows. I've been offered a lot of TV shows. And they said, if you just perform an exorcism on, on, on someone on camera, you've got, you've got your show on <laughs> Oh, I told them politely what, what they could do with the, with the offer. Yeah. I, mean, I, I can offer like that all the time, all the time. And I, I, I tell you, I have seen teams just completely disintegrate, right? I mean, just fall apart because, you know, there's a TV show possibility, and then there's a lot of fighting on who's going to be the lead and who's going to be this. And it's like, guys, it's just, you know, like, yeah. go, to go back to enjoying what you do. Right, and you'll find that life is so much easier. What a flippant thing for somebody to tell you if you do an exorcism on camera. I mean, that just shows that they don't take it seriously at all. And the second thing is, is that they're just looking at it as a kind of uh, just as an exploitative thing. 
Oh, sure, absolutely. And I find it highly offensive because the risk is very prayerful. And, you know, it's just something you never do. Something you can't do. It doesn't exist. Right. It, it, it just doesn't exist. So a person who's properly trained will know not to ever do that. And it's real simple as to why. I mean, you have a film crew behind you of 10 people taking camera shots. You got a person who's truly possessed. You're in the middle of the ritual. And these people behind you, they're not actively engaged in prayer. They're filming. So now not only do you have to worry about the person who's possessed, now you have to worry about the 10 people behind you who are not even actively engaged in prayer. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to work either. No. Because if nobody's concentrating on the prayer aspect of it, then, the, of course, it's not going to work. Well, not yeah, not because, not I mean, I really do believe that. in the power of it. Well, not only that, but now the exorcist has to worry about the person possessed and the people who are behind them, because the people who are behind them are now in grave danger of being hurt themselves. Yeah. Um, when you work with uh, paranormal groups, um, the ones that you have a good relationship with, that they that they are very responsive to what they do, uh, are these groups... Um, are, are some of these more, are they more religious? Are they more kind of secular in their viewpoint? Uh, do you get both? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get both both parts. Uh, yeah. You know, both groups. There are some people that are not over-religious, over and that's fine. There are some people that are very focused on just the evidence, just the facts, just right, the, right. What, what just, you know, what they can, the readings. And that's fine, too. Right. Just a, in a scientific, a scientific point of view, like gathering EVPs and... Right. And stuff like that, yeah. Um, I, I do still find it very interesting. Um, you know, I, I have to wonder why uh, some of the more religious establishments uh, wouldn't look at some of the things that um, that's, that like you do and that, that a lot of ghost hunters do and, and see that almost as, as like a, a proof of what they've been talking about, like a proof of the afterlife. And there seems to me like a real um, reluctance, and more from the, the kind of the evangelical background that I'm from, to really embrace the supernatural. Uh, why, why would you think that that would be? From, well, coming from a, the religious aspect. Well, perhaps, you know, again, I think it goes back to... Um, there might be some some it really a fear, legitimate fear of the subject, the yeah. belief that again you don't talk about the devil, you'll hear the flap of its wings, the belief that you know that that bad things could happen. I think a lot of people out of sight, out of mind. Yes, it exists. Yes, it's over there. Now let's not dwell on it. Let's not talk about it because if we dwell on it, we may bring something upon us. That yeah. mentality. And, and you know what? They're right. They're right because let me tell you something. The more you get involved, the more you get involved in this in this ministry, the more you absolutely will hear the flap of the devil's wings. Mm-hmm. No question about it. So I understand from the perspective of okay, we acknowledge that evil exists. We acknowledge that the devil exists, but we don't want to dive into it. I get that. As a person who lives under the stage of oppression, I understand that completely. 
What do you mean by that? Under the stage of oppression, do you feel that you're oppressed constantly by oh, by de- by demons themselves? Anybody would tell you. Any, any violently acted Father Gary Thomas, the movie that the the the, the right is after, he'll tell you that absolutely. If you have a weakness, it will absolutely prey on that weakness. Wow. Um, bangings outside the walls, uh, screams outside of the apartments that I live in. I hear it. My dog hears them. Mm. I used to have a roommate a long time ago, and we found like a horrible window just from, or, or not a window, it's a glass mirror. It's not like someone had picked this gigantic mirror up and slammed it on the floor. We both heard it. So constantly under the stage of oppression absolutely exists. No question about it. It's like when you perform these exorcisms, they, I mean, they seem to me almost like soldiers, you know, I guess that's kind of what they are, uh, and that they they recognize that you've challenged them and they're going to come, they're going to start coming for, me, for you. But they can't fully possess you because you are, as a, you know, an ordained priest, but they're going to make your life as miserable as they possibly can. The closer you get to God, the harder the devil works against you. Wow. The, idea that a priest, the idea that a priest can't be possessed is incorrect. Oh, really? Certainly. So, so a priest, because that's one thing that, um, um, you know, uh, on the on the Protestant side too, is that you hear is that um, if you're a Christian, you can't uh, not as much as like a priest or a pastor or anything. But if you're a, a Christian, you can't be possessed. That's it's incorrect. not going to happen. Absolutely incorrect. One hundred percent. Wow. Because the possession number one is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in the snap of a finger. So you have infestation, a horrible banging, the loud bangs on, on the walls and the foul, rotten smells, and dogs are frightened. It starts to interact with your sleep. You're hearing screams outside. It begins then to interact with you. goes out of the stage of oppression. You're hearing things. You're seeing things. You clearly know that you're seeing them, no question. It affects every part of your life, financial, health, everything you can possibly imagine. In that stage, it's breaking down your intellect and will. It continues to attack and continues to attack to the point where you can not fight. You really, truly believe you're going out of your mind. You think you have schizophrenia. You're seeing things and hearing things. So at that point, it is breaking down your intellect and will to the point where you can no longer fight. You've given up. And that's when possession takes place. So the idea that, that Christians cannot be possessed is absolutely 100% incorrect. That's wow. pride. That's pride. Hmm. Interesting. Um, how many times in the cases that you have, um, the, the, the 27 that you would say are real um, possessions, how I mean, many of those have been because someone opened a door, like say with like the occult or something like that? The majority of them were absolutely like that. The incubus case was from Santeria, uh, wow. from uh, a curse. The other ones were absolutely because they've done something at an earlier age in life, or perhaps they provoked, or they played with a Ouija board, or they did something to where they've opened up and had that invitation. Now, keep in mind, real quick on the previous question, Annalise McKell was a very devout Catholic. Right. Yes. Very devout. And a young boy, uh, the young boy, uh, The Exorcist, the movie was strong, because it, was it, was it wasn't a girl, it was a boy. The movie, The Exorcist, he was, uh, his family was Christian. Yeah. 
So this whole idea that Christians can't be possessed is wrong. And I know, like, the aunt in that case, um, the aunt of the boy who died, he was close to her, and she had, but she had, um, I believe it's played around with Ouija board or some other kind of spiritual thing, uh, and it had kind of opened, opened that door. That's, that is correct. Yeah. Uh, on the on the Ouija board thing, that's something that you see so much in Hollywood, you know, like with the Paranormal Activity movies, and, you know, that goes back to the movie The Exorcist and stuff like that. Um, you know, people that I know kind of scoff at the Ouija board and say that that's a, you know, it's just the Parker Brothers makes it, and it, it, it's, you know, it's supposedly supposed to be this silly thing. But I explain it to them and say, like, well, you know, what you're doing is is that you're using something to focus on. You know, I could get a piece of paper and draw some letters on it and focus on that and and bring something through if I wanted to. So, you know, not necessarily is, is that is I, I mean, I do believe the Ouija board probably isn't uh, is just another channel to let something in. Yeah, we often hear in the paranormal community of portals. Well, those are portals. Yeah. Portals are nothing magical. Portals are nothing like a, you know, a black hole or anything like that. Portals are, <laughs> a portals are, for example, a Ouija board would most certainly be a portal, because the whole purpose of the Ouija board is the intent. You use the Ouija board not to play Monopoly. You use the, the Ouija board to make contact with the spirit in which you don't know its, its essence. It's, it's fascinating to me. We always tell kids, don't talk to strangers, and paranormal investigators do it all the time. <laughs> Yeah, right. That's true. That's true. Um, so, it's interesting. Have any of your cases, have any of your cases involved children that have been possessed? Yeah, uh, not children, no. Okay. Um, because children have not entered the age of reason, so I have not seen any case where children under 13 have been possessed. None. Under 13, okay. Yeah. But 13 and above... Uh, I would You've say 13 is very questionable uh, yeah. in that particular case, but I would say 14, 15, 16, yeah, when we get above that in that, in that age, that's, that's a bit different, but no, nothing below that age. You mentioned earlier about uh, psychics uh, before uh, bringing things through. What is your feeling with psychics? Because I know that, you know, um, I mean, you, you probably know a few psychics being involved with the paranormal community. Um, how do you think that psychics are they I mean of course they would be prone as this is anyone else to possession but how do you think that they open the doorway well I think there's a lot of people who claim to be psychics yeah. I mean they go around and you know they start uh, trying to communicate with whatever entities in that home they could really hurt somebody because I, I I've met very few legitimate real legitimate psychics yeah um, and, but it seems like every team has one now. Every team, you know. And what drives you crazy is when, as soon as the psychic walks into the door, she, you know, he or she will raise their hands up and say, "It's a dean." <laughs> it's like, oh, please, just sit down. Yeah. You know, really, just sit down with the drama. Good grief. But yeah, it, it happens a lot. It happens all the time. Here's a demon, whatever. Yeah. So, so you're very leery to jump to that conclusion. Like, you have to know, like, as you said before, 
that you have to find out whether there actually is a demon involved by looking at the people, their lifestyle, um, everything that's around them, and then whether there's mental illness and everything. And then somebody just walks in and says, oh, there's a demon in here. and gets people all scared and, yeah. What makes me mad is that when people walk in there and they say, it's a, it's a demon, it's a demon, and you have parents, you have the family sitting there who might be legitimately frightened, now you just scare the hell out of the family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, real, that's real nice of you for, dude, jackass, now it's time for you to leave. You've already done enough damage. <laughs> Ask someone else behind you has to clean up your mess. Because yeah. that's what they do. They go in, it's a demon, it's a demon. And then the family with kids is sitting right there when they say it. Oh, yeah, then, nice for the kids. That's wonderful. Let's say, let's say the, the family is legitimately frightened. Then you have this person who claims to be a psychic comes in as a demon, and you scare the kids. And then what's even great is then the psychic says, well, I've done my job. Good luck. And they leave. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Einstein. I really appreciate it. <laughs> you feel like sometimes you have to come in there and do damage control. I, and I feel like it. I do it all the, all the time. Or right. paranormal groups who are not trained in demonology. They'll go in there and they'll say, we know there's a demon here. We absolutely know. And they're scaring the heck out of these homeowners. I've had homeowners that were legitimately frightened. Absolutely. I've had police officers, doctors, lawyers, judges. And they risk them that will not go back in their home. They will not allow their family to go back in the home. And then you have these investigators who these family trust walk in and the very first thing is a demon and now that's just really that's just really great i've had paranormal investigators call me on the phone in an absolute i mean just going ballistic oh my god all hell is breaking loose you gotta get down here right now the tv has just been thrown across the room and we're in trouble and then my first question is is, is first be quiet second question <laughs> Did you see the TV being thrown across the room? No, but, but it's on the ground. And who was in the room when the TV is now on the ground? The homeowners. Yeah. I see. So you're telling me that the, home, that the TV was thrown across the room, no one was in the room except for the homeowners. I see. Okay. Could possibly the homeowners have actually thrown the TV on the ground for attention? I said that happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the paranormal investigator stops and walks. Well, it, it could. It's, it's just it's a it's a mind boggling. I just tell him calm down, stop, just relax. There's probably a logical explanation. When someone says there's a demon in their home, one, a lion because they want attention. Two, they're mistaken and something can be explained logically. Three, they have a mental illness. Or four, they're telling you the truth. So if you're in category three and four. They have a mental illness, or they're telling you the truth. You better be prepared for it. Right, or they could just be wanting attention. Or they could be just wanting attention. Yeah. You know, the, the, the lying and wanting attention—that drives me crazy. But you know, no harm, no foul, as far as people getting harmed. But if you walk into someone who has uh, paranoid schizophrenia, you walk into their house, you could really be walking into a very dangerous situation. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, because the, the, they can be dangerous. Yep. Do they think everybody's about to get them? Yes, they could. Um, let me ask you too. Uh, on some of your cases, um, you know, we kind of talked about the difference between human spirits and the demonic. 
but the demonic can actually take on the form of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you you hear about that a lot, um, like where it might take on the form of a child in order to uh, get somebody's guard down, sure. um, and then it finds a way to get in that way. Have you ever had in any of your cases anything like that happen where it kind of started off as maybe like it was a sweet kind of thing, and then all of a sudden you just escalated to just complete malevolence? Absolutely, 100%. There was a mother who lost her uh, little child, I think he was like four or five years old, and he was playing the ball, and he kicked the ball in the street and got hit by a car, and he yeah. passed away. Two days later, the family saw the mother in his bedroom, what looked like she was holding something. And the family didn't see anything, but she looked like she was holding like a, like a, her son. And she was singing his lullaby. And the family called me into it, and we got some pictures. And we had a full-body apparition of what, uh, what appears to look like her son, but there are no eyes. So oh. we had to talk a little bit about this, and then we had to do a little blessing to see if there is any retaliation, and there was severe retaliation. There was a desecration of objects, religious objects. So not only did I have to help this mother go through um, the grieving process of losing her child, because she never really went through that process. Because two days later, she was now holding what she thought was her son, and now she had to, uh, she lost him twice. So that, uh, that demonic entity pretty much masqueraded as a little child. Absolutely, and with her situation, she needed, she had to have professional counseling. I mean, there's no, right. there's no other way around that. She's still, we got her some professional counseling, and, and uh, she she worked through you know that pain, but that was rough for her. Uh, the, you described the picture as a child of having no eyes. Have you heard of the black-eyed children phenomena? I've heard about the black-eyed children. I, I find that really fascinating. Um, yeah. You know. I don't know a whole lot. I, I've never experienced them myself. Uh, there are theories. So at this point, I'm not going to only, you know, we only throw theories around because I have never seen them. Um, I, I just don't know how many of these black-eyed children are legitimately black-eyed versus lighting versus contacts. I, mean, I see a lot of people now using Betty's contacts. They're all black. Sure. Pop them in your eye. and I, I just don't know. I, I find it also fascinating that a lot of them are, from the reports that I've read, a lot of them are, like, in teenage years. Yeah. Now, I just, just find that interesting. Because we all know that teenagers do a lot of things to get attention. Yeah, that's true. And so, but I've never experienced it, but I certainly would be open to learning more about it. Yeah, I don't think I want to experience it, so. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, let me ask you all the time that I have here with you, which is getting kind of short, but... Um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about on this show uh, and uh, has been talked about on other shows, we've had um, some people on that have talked about um, UFOs and mm-hmm. alien abductions and those possibly being uh, demonic in nature. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I don't think they're demonic. I don't think angels are, are, are flying around in spaceships. I, I, I just don't, I don't see that being true. However... I will tell you that uh, those alien beings, I do believe in alien abduction. The idea that we are alone is just absolutely absurd. It doesn't make sense. Do you realize that if you are on a, uh, a rocket right now and going at 40,000 miles per hour and you left Earth to go to Mars, 
it would take you between seven and nine months just to reach Mars. At 42,000 miles per hour, if you wanted to go to Pluto from Earth at 42,000 miles per hour, do you know how long it would take you? I think it's like 12 years, something like that. Well, close, nine and a half years. Just think about that for a second. And that's in our own solar system. uh, Forget the Milky Way. I mean, we are in galaxies. There are billions. So the idea to think that we are the only ones that, that are in existence in this universe, I don't buy. But I will say this, that the that UFOs who are abducting people are doing evil because they are violating your free will. Yeah. Taking you upon, upon you know, their ship, they're violating your body, they are absolutely doing evil. So therefore, I do not believe that the ones that do alien abductions or the abductions, I do not believe they're of um, good descent. But here's fascinating, I want to say this is very quick too. Human beings do the same darn thing. True. They do, True. We, we do the same thing. You know, we, we always say, well, the, these alien abductions are so terrible. Well, I am a very strong opponent for animal testing, especially yeah. for products for perfume. You, the barbar, the oh my God, the barbaric nature of humanity to see what, what some of these animals endure all for the sake of some woman or some man smelling good? Are you kidding? Are you <laughs> right. kidding? Right. Absolutely. There are things that I have seen and witnessed firsthand that would make people very ill just by talking about animal experimentations that we have done. There's, there's some people out there that believe in the, like the, um, the, the, at least the alien abduction phenomenon is more like a spiritual thing. Um, Oh, I, 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 I've talked to a lot of people who've been abducted, and there was nothing spiritual about it from them. Okay. Well, I've heard just some things about some other people that have um, that have written on this, and they've talked about how there is like a kind of a connection between people will get involved with the occult or the new age, and then they'll start having these experiences. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. that's a very interesting. Um, I'd like to read more about that. I, you know, the people that I've spoke to, they, they did not want it. They had no desire for it. They have absolutely horrible nightmares. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing that they enjoyed about it at all. Hmm. But like I said, we do the same thing to animals. Yeah, we do. Very true. Uh, well, Bishop Long, uh, got you here for the next few minutes. Um, can you kind of uh, just tell everybody, you know, how people can get in touch with you? Uh, like your web, your web presence. Oh sure, yeah. Um, you know, if they if they're bored and they want to listen to some radio, they can go to inspireradio.org. Or if they need assistance with, um, you know, paranormal clergy, they can go to paranormalclergy.com. Or they can go to facebook.com forward slash paranormal clergy. Excellent. And then we'll be able to assist them there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our on our show. And uh, I'm gonna close out the sh- I'm gonna close out this section, but uh, just stay on the line for me. And uh, uh, this is Adam. I'll be right back uh, to close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. All right, uh, I'm back on Conspiracy Normal. You know who I am. This is Adam, of course. Uh, great interview with uh, Archbishop James Long. Felt that it flowed really well. Went went to went really well with him. He had. Uh, He's a very busy man, so he had uh, not a lot of time to really talk. So it's a little shorter interview than usual. 
but uh, you know, brought up a few uh, excellent and good points talking about the paranormal community, and uh, just to say that you know not all the paranormal community is 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 like that. There's a really good people in the paranormal community, but uh, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, like to end fight. So, but uh, I wanted to uh, since uh, Luke's not here to uh, supply us with witty banter. I wanted to um, read a article, and uh, this is uh, dealing with some things that uh, well could really be for both shows, um, for tonight's show and also for um, <clears throat> last time show with uh, Adam Gorightly's third appearance when we talked about uh, James Shelby Downard, and uh, we also mentioned the Son of Sam um, murders as well. So I just wanted to read this. This is called uh, Devils in the Heartland, The Ritualistic Killings, Killing of Arliss Perry. And uh, Arliss Perry was a uh, young woman that was killed by, supposedly by a satanic cult that had ties to the uh, Son of Sam cult. So I wanted to read this article for everybody. We'll go, go through this uh, really quick. Uh, Nearly four decades have passed since a young woman from Bismarck was murdered in a satanic ritual inside a church in Palo Alto, California. The brutal killing of Arliss Perry, even today, remains unsolved. But the secret of the cult that many people believe was responsible for her death, the Process Church, lives on, and so do the rumors. The horrific murder of the 19-year-old newlywed made headlines across the nation after Perry's mutilated Nearly nude body was found October 13, 1974, on the floor of the Stanford University Memorial Church in Palo Alto. Perry's murder was investigated by detectives from the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department, who suspected the killer or killers lived in the neighborhood surrounding the university, but in Bismarck, other rumors were circulating. Arliss Perry's in-laws, Duncan and Donna Perry, were shaken when told that she had been she had attempted to convert members of a satanic cult in Mandan to Christianity. It would take a best-selling book from an investigative journalist from New York City to uncover that Perry's murderers may have been from her hometown. John Martinson, former psychology professor at Bismarck State College and lifelong Bismarck resident, vividly recalls the Perry murder and remembers of a possible satanic cult being on the streets of Bismarck. At one point, several years after Perry was murdered, Martinson assigned his class the task of trying to track down satanic cult activity. I believe it's possible that people in North Dakota were involved in Perry's murder in some way, Martinson said. Over the years, however, that's been very difficult to prove. Arliss, whose maiden name was Dikema, was a devoted Christian who was involved in many school activities and organizations while attending Bismarck High School, where she met her future husband, Bruce Perry, Brad King, a Bismarck dentist who was a classmate of Arliss and Bruce, recalls her romance as being a prime example of young love. And she attended what was then called Bismarck Junior College for a year. Arliss married Bruce in August 1974 prior to moving to Palo Alto, where Bruce was already an undergraduate student. By October 1st of that year, Arliss landed a job as a receptionist at a law firm called Spaith, Blaze, Valentine, and Klein. He was at the law firm's office where she was visited by a mystery guest the day before she was killed, an appearance that continues to puzzle those who attempted to solve the crime. Witnesses described this person as a man in his early 20s who was 5 foot 10 inches tall, wore jeans, a plaid shirt, and had blonde curly hair of normal length. Co-workers reported that Perry seemed upset by the visitor, 
who they thought was her husband. However, the identity of the visitor remains unknown today and may be an important clue in the murder mystery. On the night of October 12th, interesting date there, that's the, uh, of course, Columbus Day, but also the birthday of uh, Alistair Crowley. A Saturday, Arliss and Bruce were walking out to mail a letter and got into an argument about air pressure in their car's tires, according to sheriff's reports. Arliss went off by herself around 11.50 p.m. to pray at Sanford Memorial Church. That was the last time Bruce saw Arliss alive. Around 3 a.m. the next morning, Bruce called campus security after Arliss failed to return home. Shortly before dawn, her body was found partially hidden under the pews where she had been praying. She had been choked, beaten, and sexually assaulted. Detectives found semen at the scene and retrieved a partial handprint from a candle that was used in the assault. An autopsy later revealed that Arliss Perry was killed by a blow from an ice pick punched just behind her ear. The way she was laying in the chapel led detectives to believe it was a ritualistic killing. At that time, it was recognized as one of the worst crimes ever on a college campus. At first, Bruce Perry was the primary suspect, but detectives soon became convinced he had nothing to do with the murder. The investigation later turned into an unsolved mystery due to a lack of leads. Nearly 13 years later, Mari Terry, author of a best-selling book, The Ultimate Evil, would argue that the investigation in Perry's murder was half-heartedly pursued. Son of Sam About two years after the brutal death at Stanford, the streets of New York City reverberated with fear of a killer with a 44 caliber gun who became known as the Son of Sam. Over the course of a year, six young people were killed and seven others were wounded in the series of eight separate attacks. Terry, then a New York Post reporter, was among those writing student stories about the Son of Sam killings. It was the biggest thing going on in the whole region, Terry said in an interview with the Great Plains Examiner. I got wrapped up into the story the same way everyone else did, but when I started reporting, I said, this doesn't add up at all. In August 1977, a 24-year-old postal clerk named David Berkowitz was arrested as the Son of Sam and promptly confessed to acting alone in the shootings. Terry believed that important parts of Berkowitz's confession sounded scripted or contradictory. The New York City police closed the case, but Terry continued his own investigation. Eventually, the Queens, New York District Attorney, and the Yonkers Police Department concurred with Terry's determination that Berkowitz did not act alone. Five 44 caliber shootings had occurred in Queens and Yonkers was a suburban city where Berkowitz lived during the year of the Son of Sam attacks. Berkowitz himself also subsequently confirmed Terry's investigation, and many he actually did two of the Son of Sam attacks, killing three people, while fellow members of the satanic cult he belonged to did the others. Following his 10-year pursuit of the Son of Sam investigation, Terry wrote The Ultimate Evil. Surprisingly, the book begins with the Perry murder in the Stanford University Chapel. During his enduring investigation, Terry became convinced that Perry's murder at Sanford was connected to the Son of Sam murders via a nationwide satanic cult called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. The Process Church was formed in England in the 1960s, after Robert and Mary Ann de Grimston couldn't resolve issues with the Church of Scientology. They developed their own church and soon were labeled Satanists because they worshipped both Christ and Satan. The couple believed that at the end of the world, Satan and Christ would collaborate, Christ would judge the living and dead, and Satan would execute the judgments. Berkowitz, Charles Manson, and William Mincer, the convicted killer of Hollywood producer Roy Radin, were all believed to be members of the Process Church, or one of its related spin-off cults. 
The police closed the Son of Sam case, but Terry continued his own investigation. Over time, during interviews with Berkowitz and other sources close to the cult, Terry found a link connecting the murder of North Dakota native Arliss Perry and the Son of Sam shootings. Terry also connected the 1978 murder of John Carr, who lived at the Minnow Air Force Base, to the cult. Carr was shot in the head at his girlfriend's house on the base. The police initially ruled it as a suicide, but later determined it was a probable homicide. Carr's father, Sam Carr of Yonkers, was said to be an inspiration for the term Son of Sam. Berkowitz stated that John Carr's death was the work of members of the cult group. Berkowitz also told Terry the group likely killed Carr because he was untrustworthy due to heavy drug use and other bizarre behavior. Carr had been diagnosed as a schizophrenic. Berkowitz later named Carr as one of the Son of Sam shooters. He also named at least one identified cult member from Minnow along with Mincer as participants in the killing spree along with Carr's brother Michael who was killed in a 1979 car wreck in New York. Other shooters and some accomplices have yet to be publicly identified. The death of John Carr led Terry to Minnow, where he interviewed Lieutenant Terry Gardner of the Ward County Sheriff's Department, who had received a book from Berkowitz during Carr's murder investigation called The Anatomy of Witchcraft. Berkowitz wrote a chilling note in a margin of the book. It read, Arliss, spelled with two S's, Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California. Berkowitz admitted he authored the frightening clue. Why would he make it up? He had no motive, no reason, Terry said. He's confessed to three murders. He's not getting out. Terry's investigation also included a trip to Stanford where he retraced Perry's steps before her murder. He concluded that as many as four people were involved in the Perry murder, including Mincer and one or more cult members from Bismarck. To this day, Terry believes he knows the identities of at least two cult members from Bismarck. I think one of them was the law firm visitor, he said, and one of those two still lives in Bismarck. Terry said Arliss most likely did something to Greep besides she had to die over. She might have heard or seen something she shouldn't have, he said. They may have feared she would expose them. Or, Terry speculates, Perry, out, Perry found out some prominent Bismarck residents were involved in cold activity. Someone in Bismarck okayed this, and someone had the hooks to get a help on the West Coast, he said. This was a pretty sophisticated operation. Skepticism in Bismarck in Bismarck, rumors continued to circulate that well-known men and women were part of a satanic cult that drank blood and sacrificed animals at Pioneer Park and the caves behind the University of Mary. There were a lot of religious groups coming through town at the time, said King, the Bismarck dentist who went to school with Perry. I remember seeing people dressed in priest outfits, but instead of white collars, they wore red collars and sported upside-down crosses draped around their necks. I think they were called the Holy Order of Mans. When The Ultimate Evil was published in 1987, much of Bismarck was skeptical of Terry's theories, but Martinson, who was then a psychology instructor at BSC, was convinced that Terry was on the right track. I heard most often you have a New York City author trying to sell books, Martinson said. Folks would say, if something like this was going on around here, we'd know about it, and that those who knew Orlis would have said, if she was being stalked, we'd know about it, and how can the writer get information that we can't? North Dakotans are often suspicious of the outsiders investigating their city, Martinson said. Martinson assigned his psych students to conduct field investigations of the claims in Terry's books, but those efforts came up empty. It's like water running through your fingers, Martinson said. It was so elusive, you think there was something you'd go, and there was nothing there. We would search for rituals in parks and cemeteries. In class, we'd say that the cult members are one step ahead of us. Someone's telling them about us. 
Warrenson said it was possible that someone in a psychology class was tipping off local cult members about the class's research. King, however, is unconvinced that Terry's theories about Perry's death are correct. It didn't surprise me that someone came out with some kind of conspiracy around her murder, he said. I don't know if I agree with the author that she was stalked from Bismarck to California. I remember a lot of weird religious stories going on around here at the, in that time, like covens dancing under the full moon and rituals taking place down by the river bottoms. But in her case, I think she was at the wrong place at the wrong time. King recalls being interviewed at his office about the Perry murder by detectives from California during preparation for a 10-year class reunion. The police heard a rumor that someone in our class had set up an altar for her. But it was just a couple photos of her along with other classmates who passed away, King said. Around the time of his 30th class reunion, King called law enforcement in Santa Clara County to see if there had been any breaks in the case, but there was no new information. The local media seemed to handle the possibility that local citizens might be involved in satanic murder at Sanford University as unreliable. Reporting on the rumors was not pursued until The Ultimate Evil was published. The Bismarck Tribune published an article in late 1988 with the following headline, Halloween sets off search for Satan. The story briefly mentioned North Dakota ties mentioned in the book, but focused more on the action the police saw that November when they escorted carloads of teens away from the university's grounds where they were looking for cult activity in the caves. Kathleen Atkinson, who worked at the University of Mary, stated in the Tribune article, There was never any activity on the hill until this book used it as a reference point. Talk only came as a reaction to that, making the rumor self-perpetuating. However, the witch hunts continued into the late 90s when the caves were filled in by the university to stabilize the hill the college stands on. It's very important to know that it was Berkowitz himself who raised the connection to the University of Mary, and he did it in late 1979, nearly eight years before The Ultimate Evil was published, Terry said. Nothing about the Mary tie to Arliss's death was made public until the book came out. But Berkowitz knew about cult activities there all along, and also confirmed that rituals had been occurring there in the 1970s. Cold Case Pursuit Detectives with the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department continued to investigate the unsolved murder of Arliss Perry until just a few years ago. Using DNA technology and handprint databases that weren't around at the time she was killed, but those efforts have failed to recover any new leads. Arliss's parents, Marvin and Jean DeChemo, who still reside in Bismarck, told the examiner that they stayed in contact with the Santa Clara Sheriff's Department for more than three decades after their daughter's death. Gene DeKima said they stopped calling about five years ago when detectives stopped returning their messages. I've pretty much given up, she said. Ken Kahn, one of the original detectives assigned to the case, pursued Terry's theory by interviewing Berkowitz at Attica State Prison in New York. But Berkowitz refused to provide additional details. Kahn later told newspaper reporters that Berkowitz may have been toying with Terry and investigators. Terry said investigators could have done more to solve the case. I spent a fair amount of space in that book backing up what Berkowitz said, and I supported it in 50 ways a Sunday, Terry said. If they were so smart in California, the case could have been solved years ago. They should have been knocking down doors in Bismarck, but they didn't do that. There's a lot I would do, but I can't force people to talk. I don't have subpoena power. I did what I could, and if I could do more, I will. Martinson said he has been in contact with Terry in the years since The Ultimate Evil was published, and has seen evidence to support the theory that there is a connection between the Son of Sam murders Perry's murder, and people who live in North Dakota. The strongest link, Martinson said, is that Berkowitz admitted to spending time with cult members in Minnow, including Carr, shortly after the Son of Sam murder spree began. That connection was documented in Terry's book. What wasn't documented in the book is just as compelling. 
Martinson said Berkowitz recognized a man from Bismarck during a jailhouse interview when he was shown a series of photographs of people who Terry believed may have been involved in Perry's murder. Berkowitz identified the man in the photograph as someone he had met during a cult meeting in Minnow. Martinson said he too had seen the photograph, although he declined to name the man who was identified by Berkowitz. When Berkowitz identified the man in the photograph, it confirmed Terry's suspicions that they may have been the visitor at the law firm the day before Perry was killed, Martinson said, and it's entirely possible that Berkowitz met that person while he was in North Dakota. Whether Perry's murder was the act of an underground cult with connection to the Son of Sam continues to be a mystery, but the legacy of the Process Church of the Final Judgment continues to prosper. It, the church, has changed its name about five times and keeps a low profile, and in their current disguise they have made tons of money, Terry said, and some of the original members are still in it. As Terry stated in his book, there are multiple devils out there, and the group is still very much alive. So, I thought that was very interesting, um, especially coming from the Great Plains Examiner in Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, just wanted to read that. Well, what else can I say? That's about it. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, next week, or next time, I always do that. Next time, we were going to have Dr. Future back. He was the very first guest on Conspiracy Normal way back when, back in April of 2012. And uh, he will be coming on to uh, talk about Pharmakia. And hopefully Luke will be here and we'll have, some, we'll have a really good discussion. But until then, guys, uh, just wanted to uh, thank everybody for listening once more. And uh, join us next time on Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.